You're listening to the Violucci Film Podcast. As always with Violucci, we try to offer you something which doesn't just entertain, but also benefits and informs. I hope you enjoy the show. So we're here with John Higgins, writer and filmmaker and uh, recent author of science fiction novel, The Twisted. Boy. Boy. Twisted boy. So give us a, give us so, a general background on everything you've done. Um, well, I'm a former projectionist, um, and but first and foremost, somebody who's done, you know, I've done, I did a cinematography course, I've done a filmmaking course, I've done screenwriting, I've done acting, um, I've, you know, I've written a lot of online stuff, for example, and my current objective is really to build a brand. I'm going to be working on a new website, which I'm hoping to launch right. in the new year, um, which is going to encompass everything. But I'm also keen to develop my screenwriting ideas and stuff. I've, um, I've got a short film in the works, which I'm doing with some people who work in the, um, the soup kitchen industry. We're okay. sort of kicking around <clears throat> ideas and stuff. So Based around the soup kitchens? About, around like homelessness and soup kitchens and stuff like that. So I have a wonderful, can I tell you, very quick soup kitchen anecdote. <laughs> this is important. Years ago, uh, me and my best mate had been out uh, drinking and carousing, and we got our pockets picked in... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, just outside Chinatown. Uh, felt like complete knobby tourists. I can't believe these things are happening to the likes of us. Um, fortunately, I only keep, ever keep on me, is a little billful with my Oyster card and my debit card. I don't keep precious things other than what's replaceable. My mate, on the other hand, hadn't, let, hadn't yet learned that, and had his full wallet with everything in it, pictures of his family, receipts, paperwork, all his cards, everything, his whole life in that, which I, I had warned him against. So we got our pockets picked, didn't know it, uh, couldn't find our stuff, blah, 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 blah. He was really bemoaning the loss of all these personal items, and I was very, I told you so all about it. Um, about a week later, <clears throat> he gets a call from a soup kitchen because at one time he had volunteered <clears throat> as a cook at a particular soup kitchen. And the card from that had been stuck in his wallet for ages. Turns out that a homeless gentleman who had been served by that particular soup kitchen was roaming around through Soho, Leicester Square area and in a phone box came upon my friend's wallet. Apparently the person who had picked our pockets, took his wallet, took all the cash out of it, and just flung the wallet in a phone box. This guy, roaming about, saw the wallet, pick, opened it, realized there's no cash in there, rifled through it, and found this card from the soup kitchen. The soup kitchen had served him food. So he called them up to say, I found a wallet belonging to one of your volunteers. And because it had his name on it, the soup kitchen then contacted my friend and said, this guy who once served food to has found your wallet that was discarded in a phone booth. So he actually got <laughs> his wallet back without any money, but all his all precious items That's still intact. Yeah. Yes. He since learned a lesson. He no longer uses that big wallet. But it's a good story about volunteering because you never know. People say, what do you get back in return? Well, aside from the altruistic experience itself. But you never know when it's all going to come back full circle. <laughs> I've got a good story about pickpocketing, actually. It's not as romantic, but it, yeah. as, as all things in my life, you it never is. You picked a pocket. No. <laughs> you got a wallet out of it. I was finishing security in London. I think I was working in Covent Garden years ago. And I was getting on the bus at like four in the morning. And everyone p 
piles in and I felt a little hand come into my ja- jacket as I was trying yeah, to get onto the bus. So what they were doing, when you're all getting on to pay when you used to have to, they would all squeeze it and sure. somebody would put themselves yeah. into the queue. And I felt a hand come in to the side of me. So I sort of moved back to angle myself so I could get a good whack. Because so, I knew the hand didn't go in, so I knew yeah. it was going to come back again. And I felt it come. So I just banged my elbow and I felt the person go back with a couple of other people. Yeah. And I turned around and it was a woman who was trying to pickpocket me. Yeah. And I felt really bad Why? since then. Because she really got clocked, like I really and? smacked her in the mouth. Because it's just, I know, I'm sort of like uh, torn because between... she has a vagina that makes her less of a criminal. <laughs> Where is this? Where does this come from? Yeah. she has a vagina, so yeah. that somehow makes her above the law. Yeah, I just felt bad. I mean, these years, but I'm glad I got I'm sure it out. She's well used to getting clobbered in the head. If that's like the life she leads. <laughs> So they, I thought you were going to say you turned and you hit the wrong person. You're like clobbered old an old an old woman who was not picking your pocket, and that the person who did it was already okay. Running well, away. I'm glad you're not so offended. I don't, I don't feel so bad now. No, no. John, projectionist. Yeah, I don't know why I want to ask a load of questions about that. Has that changed in the last fifteen, ten years? Oh, it has. I mean, the advance of technology now. Right, I'm half retarded about anything. To no, do no. With, I mean, but I'll, when you when when I think of a projectionist, yeah. Do you still put the reel on? There are certain places in... There are still a number of cinemas in London. Prince Charles, for example, runs 70mm, so they run the old-style 35mm. But nowadays, most projection rooms are actually controlled by a central hub. I mean, basically, all you need is... Our friend here has a computer, and it's linked up to 12 screens, and all they do is they have a... There's actually a... A, um, a spreadsheet and what they do is you just basically download the the content onto oh, a drive God. there's no romance but nothing. but but that said it doesn't make it any less challenging as a as a thing because of course with data and stuff you're dealing with computer data per se yeah. now of course with the advent of piracy and stuff and also there's a thing called a kdm which is a license and the distributors what they do is they send the license to the cup to the the cinemas that for a certain period oh, of time right, yes it's locked in um, for security right. um but I, to be honest with you i think the love the actual romance of sitting in a big screen watching a movie i mean the prince charles cinema particularly is great for that i mean as a um, with Carrie, for example, the other week, the 40th anniversary screening, the beer room pizza nights, they've got sing along frozen. They've got, uh, you know, yeah. adults and kid things and stuff. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've, I actually went to see Pink Floyd, the wall in 70 mil, um, which, which, um, the Prince Charles run on a regular basis. And they're also running poltergeist in March oh, as really? a one-off screening. So for me, the joy of it is, is actually reconnecting with, you know, cause I, I'm from a generation when, you know, you know, when I think of, you know, we're, we're 40 years on from the original Star Wars. And like, yeah. I remember there was just something about those adverts at the time. Cause what I loved about the watching the film adverts was that they were a little bit more daring. So you'd have smoking adverts to think before you drink, before you drive yeah. adverts. And whereas today you get just the same kind of adverts on TV, but you don't get the specifics of that. And, and also there's something. Now you get about, a warning about piracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also as well, it's like what one thing I do miss sometimes is seeing the cue dots. You know, when you know when somebody's running an old print and you have the scratches and you know the print is going to. And then of course, like recently, I saw an old. Um, I saw War of the Worlds at the Prince Charles, and it was the an original, old, the 1953 version. Mm-hmm. It was a 1981 reissued A certificate print with the old A and the CIC logo, and it was quite good on that. And they also ran the Warriors as well. Um, and again, I, I love, 
I mean, I, I should I should really be moaning about, it, but there is there's a certain kind of charm about yeah, watching sure, these course, old prints, of course. and the a lack love, of perfection. Do you, think, lack do, you, of perfection. do you see a difference in the the quality of the the film itself as opposed to going from the old analog style to something that's more digitized? I don't think you know a friend of mine, Nigel Walland, who was the chief projectionist at the Odeon Leicester Square. I was invited back in '93 um, around the time that Last Action Hero was on the big screen that the at the Odeon and he said this to me he said John you can have the best technology the best projection in the world you can have the best theatre in the world but unless you have something that people are going to love that is going to be on that screen Mm -hmm. you're not going to win them over audiences are smarter than the filmmakers you never second guess the filmmakers a lot of people um Certain, I think it's a mistake that a lot of filmmakers make is that, look, you tell a story. You tell a story, you know, if you take George Lucas with Star Wars, Star Wars was a film that came out at the time when, you know, the world was, it's a bit like today, for example, you know, with Donald Trump, I mean, with all the protests going on, you know, people will be gravitating towards certain films because... You know, if you take La La Land, for example, the reason why it's been so successful is because people are looking for an escape from the realities of what's going on. Now, with the political climate of it all, you know, it happened in 1977 with Star Wars. You know, there was a lot, 70s cinema was very cynical, you know, and, and people are habitual creatures. They will always go for a movie that is going to be more heartwarming. Nobody wants to go and see a movie that's going to really be a downer. I mean, right. you if you take, for example, like Goodfellas, for example, which I saw last night, I mean, it's a great movie to watch and, you know, it's built on reputation and it's, it's, it's greatly acted, but it's, it's a very cynical piece of cinema. It's a very good movie. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not lost any of its power. I mean, the violence... I mean, there's moments where I laughed at what they were saying when the mm-hmm. postman gets thrust into the <laughs> other movie. It's, it's very funny, but... I actually had to stop myself because, you know, when Joe Pesci shoots the guy, the, the, the would-be hoodlum in the shirt, and he goes, that's what the world's coming to, Spider, you know, and, and there's the love language going on. Well, the, yeah. it's so, what, the well he shoots thing. a kid who's actually serving him because the kid tells him to off. Yeah, then he has to go him, overacting. Him, yeah. <laughs> no, but he shoots him and then he kills him, you know, yeah. and because, oh, he's smart off to me. That when they do the thing, which is such dark humour, but it's so funny, when he's stabbed the guy in the car and yeah. they go to the mother's house yeah. and he's saying, who's yeah. this photograph look like of the guy they've just stabbed? Of course, and can I borrow the knife? And they're laughing and joking about they're gonna. Well, well, actually, that was the that was actually one of the moments, the funniest moments in the film, because we're you know you have like Martin, you have Tommy's mother, who of course is played by Scorsese's real mother, Catherine Scorsese. That woman has seen those those little bit films. That's that's his. That's his mother. mother. That's his mother. And the but the funny thing is, is the um the it's the contrast between um you know the way that you know, that kind of world and the way it's portrayed. I mean, I, I think it's a much more assured piece of film. I mean, I like The Godfather, but The Godfather is, is more toned down because I think there's a maj- majesty to the performances and you're, you're listening to the dialogue a lot more than the moments of violence, whereas in, in, in Goodfellas, it is very head-on. Yeah. And it's not just that, it's also the, the drug use, it's the stuff like that. And it's a very, it still is a very influential and groundbreaking movie. You know, the, the language and violence is still very, very potent today. But it, it's but today, for example, you know, we've had since Goodfellas, we've had Pulp Fiction, we've had the, the gore movies like Hostel, we've had a lot of movies. The, the attitude and the 
depiction of violence in movies has changed so much. But Goodfellas still, you know, but it, but also you see beyond the violence, you see the characters, you see the style, yeah. you, see the, you see the filmmaking <clears throat> expertise. It's a very, very smartly directed movie. It's like, who does, who, um, sh- uh, who's the director for Casino? Scorsese. Oh, because I like looking at that. When it plays out, I like the look of it. I like the way everything's styled. I like the clothes. Mm-hmm. I don't like Sharon Stone. I think that was shoved in there. That could have worked. Mm-hmm. I just don't like that. But I really like the look of it. And also, <clears throat> the other day, I watched... Um, who's it that died? The Exorcist writer, William... William Peter Bellatti. Yeah. Was it him that died? Yes. So I went back and watched Exorcist, and I thought, God, that's, a, that's still a good film. Anyway, so I started looking up in it, and then I went to watch... I was looking at the online reviews and they said, don't watch Exorcist 2 because it will ruin everything. Yeah. So I watched Exorcist 3 oh. and Exorcist 3 is a good film. Mm. I don't know why it got back. And in fact, people what, online I was reading that people said Exorcist 3 because he didn't do Exorcist 2, Exorcist did he? 2. Exorcist 2 is, a, is actually... Does have its moments. I mean, but you, you. But William Blake, he wasn't involved. No, in it, but was it was no. nothing to do because John Borman and and um, William Goodhart were the writers on that, and John Borman was the director, and it was Richard Burton and Linda Blair. Oh, wow. it, but but Exorcist then he said 3, he didn't like the second one so much that he felt he had to go and do Exorcist well, Exorcist Three. three to make up. Exorcist Three is actually based on Blatty's novel Legion. That's the oh, actual right. story. Yeah, so Legion, it's a, okay. it's actually it's more or less the official thing, but it's also. It's actually a slow burner of a movie. I mean, I remember watching it when it first came out. And again, there's some interesting things in yeah. there. But it's not... What I think is great about The Exorcist is the fact, again, it's another one where the beginning of the film, where it's all in Iraq and he's... And it, but it, it's two... Sto- it's about... There's three different stories going on. Yeah. You have, You have, like... The Max van Sydow character, Father Merrin, who's actually trying to face his own demon because yeah. he's, he's, he, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in there. Sure. But when you first see it, you're just thinking, what's the point of this opening sequence? <clears throat> because again, you then have Chris and Reagan's relationship and then you have Father Karras, who is this troubled guy who basically just wants out. The best horror films are always about family and relationships because if you think about it, Psycho, mother and son, mm-hmm. Halloween, brother and sister. Friday the 13th, mother and son. Yeah. Um, Poltergeist, family in, in thing. They're all, they're all family related. There's, and that's why when you watch, um, The Exorcist per se, it's also, I mean, it's even a greater achievement because of course, William Peter Blatty was a hard comedy writer. And if you watch the Fear of God documentary, he said, look, I can't do, I, I'm really, I'm not making enough money from, from comedy. This is what he said in this. And he said, I've got nothing better to do. So I'm going to write that very serious novel, which was inspired by this Georgetown University yeah. thing. It was 1948. It was a boy, wasn't yeah. it? It was a boy, boy who was possessed. And yeah. so he, what he did was he changed the sex of the, of the boy to a girl. And then, of course, he added the subplots about Father Karras and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, again, you know, the, the Exorcist is probably, for my money, um, one of the most intelligent horror films of all time. Um, I mean, The Omen, for example, which is celebrating its, its, again, another movie that's just passed its 40th anniversary, is a really great opportunity. I mean, I remember watching that when it first came on TV, the decapitation scene and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, it's more of a Hokum film. I mean, whereas 
as William Friedkin says in the introduction, he says, look, this is about what you bring into it. Yeah, there was an introduction to The yeah. Exorcist, wasn't there? Yeah. Not in the cinema, I never, I never heard someone. No, way. on the video, there's an introduction where he, he talks about, um, you know, this is about the ability of faith. Okay. But of course, the trouble was, is at the time, it was like, you know, it's like, well, all we ever saw was Reagan masturbating with crucifix or seeing like, you know, throwing up on Father Karras. And it was again, again, at the time when you look at the, the time of it all, you had the devils, you had the clockwork orange, you had straw dogs where, you know, it was a period when the production code in America, you know, when there were groundbreaking things, you were seeing people finally showing very important, significant stuff in there. You know, like the Wild Bunch, for example, which is such a groundbreaking mm -hmm. movie in terms of what it represents because, you know, up until then, it was designed as a as an antithesis against Vietnam. It was against the grain of the westerns that we'd seen before, like The Searchers and The Magnificent Seven. Um, the David Weddle book, If They Move, Kill Em, which is a really recommended thing. There's a whole thing about how, um, you know, one somebody said to, there was a press conference, one woman critic said, why did everybody bleed so much? And Ernest Borgmine said, did you ever see somebody shot without bleeding? You know, and William Holden said, you know, why, why are people so shocked by it? They're watching it every night. That's the whole, that's the whole hypocrisy of the thing is yeah. because, you know, you watch newscasts, you know, I remember there was a TV series on Channel 4 when it first started called Vietnam. It was like a 20-part thing. Sure, I see. And Real it was, life. And it was, yeah. Yeah, it was a really great documentary. I mean, that and the world at war were really good. But the Vietnam thing included shots of somebody getting yeah. shot oh, really? and yeah. stuff like that's that. Right. But, it, but again, it's like we... Because it's something that's fantastic or represented because somebody has said, well, I'm going to write a script and I'm going to make the whole thing. You know, you can look at things like The Exterminator, for example, the James Glickenhaus film about a vigilante and Death Wish and all these other movies that came out. You know, there was a whole slew of movies post-Vietnam where you had things like Lethal Weapon where, you know, you, you'd have Martin Riggs and he's traumatized by violence and he's, he's lost his wife and he's going to be suicidal. And he's even bad as the you know, the, the, the villains he's after. And it was, it was such a thing, you know, you were in, I was in Vietnam, but I'm really psycho. It was kind of, but it was such a tricky thing because you'd have things like, you know, like Rambo and stuff, you know, and Stone going, do we get to yeah. win this time and stuff? But, but they're good action adventures, you know, First Blood and, um, you know, Rambo and Rambo 3 are really well-made movies. Um, you know, I mean, even Stallone admitted in an interview, he said, look, could Rambo live for all that? Of course not. He made a Raiders of the Lost Ark action adventure. And, he, and it, it was the time when it was released in 1985, it just caught the essence of what the public wanted. And in America, for example, there was a lot of cynicism about it. But, he, but, but it touched a nerve, First Blood touched a nerve, because it is about a disenfranchised form of, supposedly form of Vietnam vet. I mean, that's the image that we're getting. Mm. What year Who's did it come out? 80, 83? Which five? one? First, Blood. First, First Blood, Blood was 82. Oh, Rambo was 80. So First you, Blood was 82. Rambo was 85. So he's of the age group, the demographic yeah, yeah, of yeah, guys yeah. that yeah. would have that, yeah. who had post-traumatic stress disorder before that was even fully recognized. And so there is an element of realism in it where people could connect to that, that yeah. he's this disenfranchised soldier who uh, is now sort of in his mind still in this, this rampage because yeah. he hasn't fully left the war and never... And as, as well as abandoned by his country because they've never, they just sort of used him and didn't treat him. And it coincided a few years later with Bruce Springsteen's Born the USA album, which people misunderstood as being about patriotism, where it's really anti-patriotic. Oh, really? It's about nihilism and, and the abandonment of 
the American dream. Oh, is it really? Something yeah. Really but it was, so, marketed, I mean, it was but, marketed as that oh, because they of made course, him a pop star. Yeah, but. and of course, Born on the Fourth of July is another yeah. song which um, which was inspired by The fun, funny thing is, is we're first going back to First Blood. It's David yeah. Morrill's original book, Rambo Dies. Oh, really? He dies, but basically in the, in the original book, um, because there's a famous story in Kirk Douglas's biography, The Ragmanson, he talked about how he originally was going to play Troutman. Mm-hmm. He was originally the Troutman, and what it was was he. Who's Troutman? Um, Richard Crenning, you know the the Colonel that that trains. Oh, him. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was Kirk Lucas was the first choice for that, and as he says in the biography, he says he was sent a script that he didn't like, which was the Stallone script, and he turned up, and he says, "Here's the script." He goes, "It's what I was turned down for," and he said, "But you can't expect me to shoot a script I've turned down." He said, "No, no, but." He would, he'd been talking to the wrong guy, Ted Kutcher. In fact, Stallone had written this very positive script. And he said, well, the, my bone of contention was that Troutman realized what a monster he created and killed Stallone. That was what the original oh, ending really? was going to be. Yeah. And he does do that. There is actually a deleted scene on YouTube oh, wow. with where Stallone actually dies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the same thing happened with... Um, I think it happened with Lethal Weapon where at the big end of the film he... Um, you know, there's a couple of sequences in Lethal Weapon which were deleted. The first one was the um, the opening scene in a bar where Mel Gibson actually attacks a couple of people, headbutts. There's a deleted scene on there, mm-hmm. and also the scene with the sniper in the school, which I think was removed from the UK release at the time because oh, it right. actually was released <laughs> at the same time as The Hunger for Massacre. Right. Yeah. But here's the funny thing: if you want to talk about the cynicism of newspapers, this mm-hmm. is the funny thing. The Sun had a whole four-page spread of the hunger for massacre, and they're showing you where Ryan allegedly shot people. But at the bottom of one of the pages, it said, 12,000 free tickets to see Lethal Weapon, the, <laughs> yeah. the, film, the film sensation of the year. But, but it's like the, again, you know, with, with um, you know, again, this kind of demographic and the whole essence of well, what do it, you think we just become sorry, desensitized to violence so not much? Not at so all. No, I don't that believe we don't, it. Uh, that we're able to uh, sort of blind ourselves, cut ourselves from a real life massacre to, oh, here's a film uh, that features, you know, bloodbath, and that either we've become desensitized or we just become so adept at compartmentalizing between real violence and make-believe violence. I, I think we are, I don't believe that for a case. I think people will be always be shocked by real life. You know, when you think of people dying in, you know, when you think of the terrorist attacks that are going on. Well, I was stuff. just going to say, the uh, lawyer who is trying to represent one of the terrorists in the Paris attacks, he actually has given up. He can't represent this guy because the guy refuses to cooperate. But he said he, from his angle, he's trying to build a defense for them based on perhaps their political beliefs or their, their religious beliefs or whatever their angle is that motivates. And he says, he says they have none. He says these are just essentially teenagers raised on a diet of Grand Theft Auto. And that's what they think just they've fun. been doing. Yeah, this is all a big larf. They yeah. had no plan. They have no real necessarily religious affiliation other than how to get a hold of the weapons yeah. to do what they did but to them they just went in like Grand Theft Auto so they caught all those guys at different parents they did how many was there I don't know at least two, six seven. More. no no at least six but they caught oh, really? them uh, one was just he he was living somewhere out in the, off the sh- the um, shoulder of the, the road somewhere someone uh, and 
Yeah, I don't know what Isn't he thought funny? he was doing, but he was essentially just imitating what he had seen in films in Grand Theft Auto. So these are people who, and then found some excuse, either you know this so-called religious agenda or whatever they were doing, in order to fulfill this. But they essentially that's why the the their defense, their public defender, can't defend him. He's like this guy. He has no, I have no no ground, no basis, no basis yeah. from which to build a defense. This is just some punk kid. Who, who thinks he's playing a video game. He's not, and I can't even say that he's uh, mentally unsound because he knew exactly what he was doing. Isn't that that funny thing they say about like the horror, that in the, the, big, the worst monsters are the ones that they're just they're normal people. Like there was nothing that led up to this big thing that happened. It's, it's, you, can never, you never can tell really, you know, when you, when you think of, you know, this is the funny thing when you read about people like George Michael, for example, you have this perception of somebody... You know, he's millionaire, he's very generous and stuff, and he's living in this big house in Oxford, which most people dream of having. I mean, I would love to have a big house in Oxford and have that kind of freedom where, you know, the freedom of finance where you can say, look, you know, and I'm in my house and I can sit down, I can watch TV and you have the big thing. But it, like with Elvis, for example, you know, it's like the... Yeah, because all that money and power, it just normalises. Eventually, it will normalise. So that's your sort of base level. Yeah. So it's nothing's ex- uh, wonderful anymore. So you yeah. have to look at, for those extremes, if well, that's the, what you've chased yeah. all your life. But it's kind of like with... Um, you it know, says in Kane. Yeah, like Paul Gamachini was interviewed. No, it was Mike Reed, actually. He was interviewed um, just on the day after, you know, the DJ. And he was talking about George Michael's death. And he said, well... From what I gather, George Michael was planning a comeback, but it's very easy to sort of plan your comeback when you're in a room like this mm-hmm. and you're on your own. But once you step out into the, of the fishbowl into the world, you know, it's, it's it, you know, people, you know, Elvis was, you know, Jerry Garcia commented on this, you know, and he said at the time, what do you do when you've reached absolute success? He goes, they didn't really know how to deal with Elvis in a way they couldn't because he was a one an iconic image specific image and he said well where what can you do you go from Memphis to Las Vegas what you know what's what is that you know Paul McCartney for example after he left the Beatles he he was he was very scared he he didn't know what to do and then he said look I better do something because my voice ago so he formed wings he went on a he went on a tour of universities yeah. and he said look we're going to go on a, in a minibus tour of universities just do gigs per se, just to get the confidence back. You know, Michael Jackson, for example, with the O2 thing, again, that was an overwhelming thing. He, you know, f- could he have survived 50 nights? Of course not. But you you do get a sense from that this is it film that actually if he'd been more of a walk, more energetic and stuff, because he still had it. Mm-hmm. But it's with all the stuff that was in his mind, you know, Robin Williams, for example, you know, I think he was overwhelmed by the fact that he kept, you know, his alimony payments and everything yeah. else. I mean, I can't, I, I don't know the full story, but. But do you think that also that it's part of human nature to set some set oneself up to fail? These guys reach a pinnacle of success we would all envy, yet seem incapable of handling or maintaining it. And seem, you know, to have nowhere else to go but down. And yeah. it's almost as if we designed that for know. ourselves. I... We like, right, because we, we like to 
attack people when they're at their peak. No, I think and it's more we, simple than that. I think it's just to get what got you there, that drive to fill a gap in your soul yes. or to be recognized or whatever. When you get to the point where you've got that and you realize it didn't fill what it is, you right. now have to look elsewhere. Which is why they start going down. They realize it yeah, but it's more accidental. Them, I don't but think. You, not necessarily. But here's they, the thing. they line themselves up for that. Uh, Michael Crichton had an interesting thing when he was alive. When, when he was at the peak of his in early success with things like Westworld and the Andromeda Strain, he was on a plane, and this is what he read. And he, he got everything. He'd done a novel. He'd done everything he set up to do. And he was on a plane... And he couldn't understand why I, he wasn't happy. And then he figured it out. He says, I've run out of goals. I've, I've achieved that. So what he did, yes. so what he did, which led to, of course, all the other stuff that he's done after that, was he, he actually spent about two or three years just researching various subjects. So it led to things like ER, Disclosure, Jurassic Park, all this kind of other stuff. Mm-hmm. If you are a, if you're a 10-year-old, in a nowhere town somewhere in the world and you see something going on you think, great, I'm, you know... Happiness is over there. Happiness is over there. The grass is not greener. Yes. You know, it's it's not a case. I think every... I, I think everybody... We are all part of this kind of desire that we have this desire to succeed. We want to succeed doing something. We want, we want to focus. We want something to fill that void and that need, you know that passion that we we should have and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you know and so yeah i think the problem was sort of in you from the start some people just want to be an actor and actress and they like the theater and that's it but some people are chasing something else within yeah. that industry that's as you said well, set up it's also, not going to fill the hole once someone achieves a certain like say pop celebrity status <laughs> you now have a crew a team of people who are dependent on you now working well, to, to keep because they're on the yeah. payroll they're not to they're not concerned about you branching out to chase a new dream they're very happy you're doing exactly what you're doing maybe george michael didn't want to have a comeback maybe he had had some surgery on his throat tracheotomy was told he couldn't hit notes that he that he used to be able to hit well, so People want to not have to go back. It no longer becomes fun anymore. It's a job. It and was, it's a job keeping other people I was people watching afloat. a documentary about Elvis, and I didn't realize how much he got tied into those films where the people around him said, like, he did a few films and they were good, you he know. He did about uh, 28, and then, I think. And yeah. then he had, to, but he had to fulfill all of the films that he hated doing, and he was doing the stupid songs yeah, in them. And he, he was saying, it's yeah. the same fucking character, but, but, but now I'm a racing driver, now I'm a helicopter, now I'm a motorbiker. He said, it's the same character, but he you had know, to do Elvis them. Elvis never, never toured outside the US, and they didn't, he used to ask his manager, say, I want to tour Europe, I want to tour Asia. Yeah, why and was it the manager didn't because, want to Because, as it turns out, his manager oh, the whole time was an illegal yeah, alien. The passport, and yeah. If he had left the US, they would have found out and mm. he never would have been would have been allowed to enter. And he never gave him a road manager yeah. to go. I um I actually saw Jailhouse Rock at the Prince Charles two weeks ago. They did a 35 yeah. mil print. And again, I you know, it was the first of the movies, 1955 or 1956, and it really captures the essence of what Elvis was. It was a very good drama. You know, he went into the prison, he came out, he became a star and stuff, but there's some really good moments in it. Um, I grew up watching those when I was a kid on TV, BBC Two. They used to show them on early on Saturday night. So everything from Roust about King Creole, Paradise of Wine style. On a Saturday night, yeah? Yeah. Because there was a thing, the BBC we used to show, they used to have a slot called Saturday Night at the Movies. So it consisted of Elvis films, 
um, the Jerry, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis films. Yeah. Um, it's a mad, 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 mad world. You know, that's where actually I watched a lot of those movies, you know. Um, I remember when John Carpenter's Elvis, the movie was first screened, I think it was Christmas 1980, mm -hmm. the original three-hour TV movie. It was released theatrically in the UK in 79 as a two-hour version with Kurt Russell, and um, which was a really great... If you get a chance, watch that. That's a really fantastic. I think it's on Blu-ray now, but yeah. it's... Um, I, re I remember my father and I watching that, and it, it covered the whole thing, and it was... I mean, Carpenter said that he had to shoot it in like a very limited time. But what what happened, when that was first screened in 1979 in America, it beat One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Gone With the Wind into the ratings. It hit, it was the number one film. Everybody watched it. Oh, yeah, I remember watching it. It was, yeah, we were glued to it. Yeah. He did, Kurt Russell did such a good performance yeah. of it. And it was, and was well done. It wasn't sort of like, a, you know, a lot of them, NAF ones that you got. Kurt Russell was so good in it. You actually, it was quite believable. I really liked the Spartacus film with mm -hmm. Kurt Russell. Like that's, whenever I, put it, I see it on, no matter where it's played. Kurt Douglas. Uh, Kurt, Kurt, Douglas. Douglas. Kurt Douglas did <laughs> not play across. Elvis. Kurt Russell played Elvis. <laughs> Spartacus with Kurt Douglas. I'm Elvis. I'm Elvis. <laughs> no, I'm Elvis. <laughs> no, I'm Elvis. <laughs> yeah. but they, they said Elvis could have actually been a really good actor. But he just kept getting those shitty things. His like, manager made him do it. His manager way? made him do these throwaway scripts. Throwaway yeah, when you watched, they said like he was being tortured by having to yeah. do these bloody films. Yeah. And how many did he do? I think he did some like 28. That's yeah. a lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> just, and again, it's his manager who convinced him. He did everything his manager told yeah, him to do. So his manager said, no, you're not getting a road manager to take you to Europe. I have to be with you. So he was so dependent upon him, which is hard to believe because he has this bigger than love character, but that he was actually submissive to this manager yeah, yeah. Who, who told him, you're going to play Vegas. and you're going like to the Colonel? What was Colonel, Colonel Tom, Tom Parker. Parker. And who is he neither, was, gambler, he was neither a colonel, nor was his name Tom, nor was his name Parker. <laughs> but he, he was, was a prolific gambler. Like yeah, which is why degenerate. he booked him into Vegas because he made a cut a deal with the casino yeah. that he would get uh, only pay fifty p on the dollar for all his gambling. Isn't it funny that the main and so he had Elvis doing two shows a night, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Two shows a night, seven days a week, uh, and uh, yeah, the colonel actually was you know getting half his uh, half yeah. his gambling but, but, bill taken care of. But for all that, it's like when you think of you know Elvis Lower from Hawaii, those. Those were event things, you know, when they beamed them onto, you know, that's another thing that's kind of gone out the window when, you know, today we have Sky Box Office, but yeah. when cinemas used to show closed circuit TV performances of like Ali and, you know, uh, boxing, yeah, boxing yeah, yeah. and stuff. Um, but you, you, you remember those moments. I mean, okay, Elvis was limited, but, you know, I remember, you know, like, oh, John, they're showing Elvis a lot from... And of course, this was a time when you had to stay up and watch it because there was no such thing as a VHS yeah, yeah, recorder. Yeah. You had you to saw stay it or up. You didn't. <laughs> you know, or you'd watch... Um, you events know. like that were rare. The only time you ever saw something like that was the Olympics when the Olympics came out, a big sporting event. Yeah. So you didn't see, mm. you know, celebrity concerts like that. Were, so I heard people yeah. say about the moon landing, like the dad would actually get them up and say, listen, well, yeah. you've got to watch this happen yeah. on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I interjected there with a favourite film of mine. It was nothing to do with what we were talking about. Some of your favourite films. Uh, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark. Did, wasn't yeah. that one of your favourite films? Yeah, Raiders okay. of the Lost Ark. Why? I mean, Any reason? Give me the... Um, I think it's, you know, for me, it's probably Spielberg's best because it's as near perfection as you can get. And Why? It's, it's just popcorn entertainment and it's a great family movie. And I think it's, it's just... 
it's not just the you know the production design but it, it's it's the music it's the performances oh the whole thing yeah. a lot of people focus on the action but i actually want to bring special mention to paul freeman who plays belloc he's he's the he's the archaeologist who kind of tortures india and he's kind of like the dark version of he's the one you know again we see that there's nothing you can profess that i cannot take away (laughs) but there are two scenes in that film which i love one of them is just after marion's been allegedly killed in the truck and he's in the in the in the um He's in the bar and he's going to um, India and he's going, look at this, $10 from a vendor. But I take it, I bury it in the sand, it becomes priceless. Because you want to talk to God, let's go and see him together. That's the first scene where I think it's a one, because I like those interjections. And the other scene is near the end where Harrison Ford's got the rocket launcher and you're expecting a big special effect. I mean, you do get it at the end, but you get this. He goes, I'm going to blow up the ark, ready? He goes, Blow it back to God. <laughs> Indiana, we are merely passing through history. But this, this is, and it, that's the thing. People don't, people rarely talk about Paul Freeman's contribution. Whereas Karen, again, Karen Allen's fantastic as Marion Ravenwood. Because again, compared to like Kate Capshaw as, as Willie Scott and Alison Doody as um, Elsa, Elsa Schneider, the, the characters, she's actually the definitive indie heroine. And I like mm-hmm. her for that reason. When she actually punches him, she was woefully underused in, in Kingdom of the Crystal School. I'm hoping that the fifth one, which is coming up, is going to be hopefully a return to what it is anyway. I mean, The Last Crusade is, is salvaged by Sean Connery mm-hmm. when he goes in. I think he really is the thing that makes it. Yeah. I mean, the scene where he goes, how did you know it was nice? He goes, she talks in her sleep. <laughs> you know? So that's one of them. I, I've, I remember... I know that it didn't do that well the first time it opened. I mean, it was number seven in the top ten, but it didn't really make its um, it didn't really make its um, mark until nineteen eighty two got on the reissue. And then, of course, it was the first sell through title in the UK for twenty pounds. What does that mean? Um, retail title. Title. Okay, right. Yeah. You know, mostly at the time when Raiders was first released on sell through, most of it was like rental, so you pay three pounds in a video store. Yeah. But CIC did a very clever thing where they actually retailed Raiders of the Lost Ark in nineteen at the Christmas eighty three as twenty pounds. And you that was the first title. Oh, right. So okay, right. Right. when you think of all the things at HMV, I think an officer and a gentleman followed after that, which was eighty four, which is was another successful title. So that's one of my favourites. I mean other ones um, I think The Godfather Part Two. Um, I mean, what I'll, do you think uh, of the third one? It, yeah, just... it's 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 okay, but I think it it suffered a little bit because I think it was again another of those movies that was a victim of its own hype, and it it whilst I think there were some interesting things in it, but they didn't really develop the second half of it right, yeah. as they should have done. Yeah. It set it up nicely. I mean, it was a great. I mean, it mean Copper described it as King Lear. You know, and uh, preparing for death and stuff. And I think it has a great cast. And I, I like some of it. I liked Andy Garcia's performance as Vincent. But yeah, I don't know why I didn't like it. I can't think. I was watching it. I like looking at it. It's done well. It's acted well. It looks yeah. nice. But it's just something's missing. I don't know but, what. But I love The Godfather Part 2 for the fact that it has the two stories happening. Yeah. And De Niro's excellent. And I like Fanucci. And I like the, you know, the epic quality of it. And, and from the very beginning, it's really... 
the opening immigration immigrant scenes and stuff. I mean, I actually saw the Godfather novel for television, which was the extended mm-hmm. seven-hour thing, which I think BBC One showed over five nights in '83, mm-hmm. and it was it also included several key scenes like where um, you know, like Tom Hagen came about, where Hyman Roth came about. Oh, there really? Some, yeah. There's a lot of other scenes in there. Um, but, a, but the thing is, is the actual subtitles in the TV version were slightly different to what was in the Godfather part two, but it was a, it was toned in chronological order. Whereas yeah. in, oh, right. so you, but they, they showed a lot of, they sort of, it was a very cleverly cut together thing. And I, I, I think so Godfather part two, um, I've heard, sorry, I've heard them say that, uh, the Godfather is a Greek tragedy, whereas Goodfellas is a Shakespearean tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. The Godfather is yeah. more epic and classical yeah. and yeah. Goodfellas more I, for the Every time round. I go back to watch, it's such a cliche thing to say, but every time I go back and watch Godfather films, I always notice something different. Even up to, I've seen it about 10 times now, mm. and I watched the Godfather 2 again, and at the beginning where... The um, the they're having the party, the outside, and all that, and the yeah. senators supposed yeah. to come. They're supposed to be friends, and thank you for the check and all yeah. that. So they're supposed to be friends, yeah. but he pronounces his name wrong. Yeah, and I thought, oh, I didn't notice that. He, like when he's introducing, him, he pronounces his name wrong. Like they're supposed to know each other, but he doesn't even know his name. Well, but that's the thing is, there's yeah. there's always things where you know you can watch a film ten times. I mean, and pick up on things that you never saw the first time yeah. around, and likewise also. But that's the danger of watching an old film. So you, you may watch, you know, you, you pick up on flaws in movies. You know, like I watched Die Hard 2 the other week. Right. So what year is this now? 1990. Die Hard 1990. 2. And I'd seen it before and I loved it for what it is. But there's a fatal flaw in it where, for example, the terrorists <laughs> have sort of taken over this church near the, near the, near the airport. Yeah. And they take an axe and they chop and wire. Now, this is Dulles Airport, and it's one wire that's going to control the <laughs> yeah. whole thing. But, that, but, but the thing is, you don't ever think of it. I mean, John McTiernan actually said, look, nobody can ever fit into air vents, but in films you can. That's oh, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the, um, you know, I mean, I love, you know. Again. But who do you, sorry, who do you credit for, uh, Granting the audience that ability to suspend their, their belief that much. Because you could watch one film where you see someone and they're like, oh, stupid, they got a sky crawling to whatever we do that. Or, oh, are you kidding me? They chopped up, you know, where we noticed that. But is that just and a then time of some, now? Like, well, are we no, just cynical is, this now? Is the, the, no, no, I think it's just the magic of filmmaking and storytelling. But, but this is it. If you take Die Hard 2, for example, we, we're, we're so tuned in to, because we've seen the original movie, it's like if you take... Force Awakens, for example, you know, I mean, the, I, I read all these comments on IMDb about, oh God, and I was quite shocked by the sheer negativity of it. And I thought, <laughs> look, but I didn't care. Look, it's yes, like, I, I think I just, I was yeah. just, look, you, the makers of Star Wars couldn't, here's, here's the thing, people moan about the prequels, people moan about the prequels, but who demanded more Star Wars? Yes. It was the audience. The audience demanded more yeah. things. So, but, I forgave, I actually forgave, I like, there are certain things about the prequels I like. I like the first half, the Tatooine stuff in Phantom Menace. I like the the plot of Obi-Wan and Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones. And I pretty much like a lot of the stuff that's going on. But somebody actually made an interesting point about the Phantom Menace saying, well, actually, 
Would there have been more of these reboots if there had been no Phantom Menace? Would there have been a, mm-hmm. a Gollum if there had not been a Jar Jar Binks? Because Jar Jar Binks actually was the template for all the performance capture anyway. So you, you think about that. And a friend of mine actually pointed out that there's a very clever thing in, in Revenge of the Sith about Palpatine. The fact is, is that he has these two armies and he cleverly fights them against each other so he can seize power. It's an, and I, when, I, when, he, when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, he's actually quite right. So there are things in those, a lot of movies that we watch that we are, we're, we're tuned in because A, of fans, we want so much to like something. So if you take Godfather Part 3, we had waited for yeah, like, yeah. it was like 16 years. And we, but we, we were demand, you know, the audience will always go, you know, when you think of the Fast and Furious films, I mean, they've, you know, they were, the first one was like a, an extended episode of the A-Team. And, yes. they, and then you get like, and then of course, Fast and Furious 6, and I, I watched it, I thought, this is actually not bad. It's like, if you take Con Air, for example, I could not take a Jerry Bruckheimer film seriously after that one, because when Armageddon came out, I thought, this is too serious. Con Air was brilliant. I mean, just handing up the bunny saying, let, let it go or the bunny gets it. I mean, it's a very clever... I loved it for that reason because I just thought it was, you know, I thought Malkovich was great and Nicolas Cage was good. And it was like, you know, that to me, that to me is a proper audience involver. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruckheimer really, from the very beginning when you get the, the, you know, and, you know, Rangers lead the way and he has that punch up in, in the thing and he goes into the thing and there's that wonderful montage where he goes... And, he, and there's a really silly thing where he's doing like the tape and he's saying, you know, I'll have my margaritas on the patio and yeah. he's learning Spanish. It's just, you know, audiences will be tuned in something. If you, if they are, if they are, if, if they see it's rubbish or they see something like that and they know it's rubbish, they will buy into it. Does it then, but does, I mean, who do you, sorry, who do you, I don't say blame or I hold accountable anyway, when it comes to films like the whole Star Wars franchise, I can forgive uh, a film that has certain plot holes in it and things of that nature, if I'm fully entertained throughout, because I know it's a film, it's make-believe. What uh, I find pointless to a degree is when you get these aficionados, these people are so obsessed that they immediately have to go online and point out every little error. That's and how They're so disappointed with this. And I'm like, I think, in effect, they've paid to be disappointed. They want to cast themselves... As so much smarter than the filmmakers that it's almost part of their connection with it to be a dissatisfied customer. Well, I, say, I don't because I, I really don't get what they're. I don't think what they're the, going the, to the, get the, out of it. The critique there's nothing thing that we perfect or the critique that we get on now from everyone. I don't think it's a problem with the film. I think it's a problem with the time that we live in, where everyone thinks they've got a voice, where you really haven't. You can't. It's you can't yeah, comment. Yeah, it's on a Coppola film this, or a Steven Spielberg film. You have no right, but you believe you can but, comment but on it. But this is that. That, I think, is both the strength and weakness of mm-hmm. social media. Nowadays, for example, it's actually forcing, if, if filmmakers are smart enough, you know, at the end of the day, film people are very, very smart people. Executives are smart. Actors are smart. Filmmakers, directors, you name it. I mean, I've, I've met one or two of them, and they're very smart about what they do because they're proud of their craft. I think today, for example, we are we are in a in an age where the technology is taken over, and now the studios and the filmmakers are seeing it. When you think of all the the actors and filmmakers who have Twitter accounts, that you know, 
it, it's it's a much more yeah it's a funny thing they've almost opened pandora's box they said we need all this social media so let's let them in but now they're starting to comment on everything but we need them to do that that's part of the process Derek- of releasing of in fact when you said to me about star trek the film that came out and i said why are they all bloody kids? They're supposed to be running this trillion dollar spaceship. And you, you said, no, because there's, there's a thing they're building here. They need them to be young so they can build them in the oh, future. Oh, like Harry Potter, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. want them to be young so it doesn't, they're, they're because of the stuff franchise. in the future. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, yeah. oh, okay, so they're playing around with it as yeah. well. They're not just making a film and they're an auteur and it's one. No, they're playing that bloody game of everything in the long run and yeah. voices yeah. in and out. So they don't really care whether it's critical. But the, but the, but the real disappointment somewhere is that when you get people are not using the technology in the way it should be used. You know, like, for example, people, but people recognize it because now they know, you know, like um, if you take, if you take, for example, the, um, you take, for example, like the way CGI and physical effects are going, people, you know, if you take like James Bond, for example, you know, Casino Royale, I mean, there was a lot of cynicism. No, I've never seen a James Bond film. <laughs> but no, but, but turn in, turn in your. But you, but you think about what I think is great is that I mean, if you take Die Another Day for example, everybody was moaning about the invisible car and stuff. But what they didn't pick up on was the fact that actually the first ten to fifteen minutes of that movie, where M and James Bond are having a bit of a a, a really bad thing and he's having an argument, I was going to throw you back in there. The funny thing is that's exactly how the Ian Fleming novels were when. Craig was announced as James Bond. People were saying, oh, it's James, Dan Craig. how can he be Bond? A lot of people had not read the books, the Fleming novels. Craig's portrayal is actually closer in spirit to the actual Fleming novels than, than people believe. I mean, the way that, because he's, he's not portrayed in, you know, we are so used to the image of a James Bond mm-hmm. movie. We Suave. have Suave and stuff. But the Fleming books are really, really good. I mean, I still believe that if Connery had done On Her Majesty's Secret Service instead of Diamonds Are Forever as the last film, that would have been the greatest Bond film ever because it is the most faithful of the books. How many books were there that films... There are, there are... There's about 17 or 18 books, but oh, the really? funny thing is is that a lot of them were actually used as a start-off point. They've more or less used up. So... Haven't they used the names twice? Like there's been an old James Bond called something. Yeah, Casino heard. Royale was yeah. made exactly. as a spoof in 1967. It oh, was actually right. it was the rival John Huston. It was the rival film for You Only Live Twice. But yeah. then when Sony got the rights to the original Casino Royal novel, basically Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson said we want to make it the way it was. So that was the most faithful thing. What they did was they took the basic essence of what the book was okay. and actually updated it. So they included terrorism. You know, there's still things in the book anyway. But For Your Eyes Only, the book, is actually five stories. And oh, what right. they did was there's, there's a lot of, like, Riziko, for example. Milton Crest is in a story called Riziko. He was in License to Kill. The Living Daylights is actually the start-off point. The book is actually the start-off point for the 87 film. Chronologically, you are, um, Man with the Golden Gun is the sequel to You Only Live Twice. And in Man with the Golden Gun, there is a thing that has never been done in a James Bond film before, which is the fact that in the opening pages of Man with the Golden Gun, Bond tries to kill him in her office, in his office. In the book? In the book. And for what reason? There's, because he's been brainwashed in You Only Live Twice. Oh, oh. Because basically, the, you know, do you know what You Only Live Twice is? He goes, you, are, you only live twice, twice when you're born and twice when you come back from the dead. That was, there's a thing at the very beginning of the right. Fleming book. Um, so 
When he goes out into the field, basically he goes after Scaramanga in the book to prove his worth again. So it's a little bit like what went on in Casino Royale, you know, the, the, the film version. Um, the most faithful Bond books are like Goldfinger from Russia with Love on a Majesty's Secret Service. It's, um, it's so you're saying that the most, the Craig, what's his name? Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. He's sort of more realistic to the book. Yeah. How so? Do you know, I, watched the, I saw something. No, but in what way? I want to know this. In what way is he? Because. Oh, sorry, oh. That noise. That's Apparently it. we're not supposed no. to know. Um, <laughs> because, because he's a more grounded, he's a more grounded individual. I think when they cultivated the image for the films, you know, it was spectacle. Yeah. You know, Glossy. going back to 1962, when Dr. Noel was first released, it was actually nobody had ever seen anything like it. You know, exotic right. locations, you know, nowadays you have EasyJet, you, you know, it's affordability. You right. could go yes. to the Bahamas, you have like these package holidays. But back then, you know, this was post-war. People yeah. were still, there was still, it was the end of the 50s. People had never seen anything like that. So the exoticness of those original books, um, I mean, Connery started the image off. I mean, he's still, for my money, mm -hmm. he's, the, he's the template for the bonds that came after. And everybody still loves up to it. But the way that they've cultivated those, the last four books, you know, with the last films with Skyfall and stuff, Skyfall actually encompasses the essence of what Fleming is, you know, and stuff like that, and, and Spectre as well. And it is, for me, the rea the, there's a more groundedness in Craig's portrayal. Well, I, I see a documentary a few months ago on YouTube, and it was about the top 10 psychopaths, yeah. like in, on TV or film. And the number one was actually the Craig David Bond he said that, that that version of him he said he would have to be like a sociopath to do what he does yeah. and this type of person he is he's like he's that real like he would have to be a sociopath to play that person in a like that's his character yeah. he would be a sociopath because of the violence and you forget you're willingly able to kill people and then change your character he said he yeah. would be a psychopath he was the number one but 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 that's the thing is that we've we've learned because of Fleming's you know, because of Fleming's creation and what he's done, it's actually a very, it's, it's always amazing that these films have maintained their consistency because, but, but because it's James Bond, we've embraced the fact that he's, you know, he's going out and he's beating people up or he's, you know, he's more brutal and he's more acknowledged like that. But we, we, but we still accept him as the superhuman of the 60s, the gadget lady. Now with the, the sort of, what is it, Jason Bourne? Jason Bourne, yeah. yeah. And who's the Tom Cruise, the Mission, uh, Mission Impossible. Impossible? Is that going to water it down? Is James Bond sort of, no, no, it's going to be over? I mean, like, what's people, unique there about are, him? There will be great pretenders. I mean, every single, you know, be it True Lies, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, is that every single time somebody comes up with um, a successful franchise that actually takes like that, Bond will say, right, we're going to do, you know, right. True Lies was actually, what True Lies did was actually the revive the Schwarzenegger oh. one, actually, because you had the scene at the beginning where he takes the, he takes the frog suit off and then he walks into a thing. That's, that's homage to Goldfinger. Sure. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. You know, and it, it's like, well, look, we're, we're, uh, you know, it's an interesting dynamic that when, you know, and Bond will always come back. They prove when, when, um, when Never Say Never Again was released and when Casino Royal was both released, both films did release well when Never Say Never Again was released that was successful but it did not make as much money as the Octopussy right. Octopussy was a much more successful but I'm just wondering is, 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 are the James Bond now which they were great 
are they sort of like the iPhone where everyone else has finally caught up with them now? Like the Reacher and the Jason Bourne, they're, they're finally... They're st- and still, they're gonna, they're still it's in- still going to hold out well, a unique... It, here's the thing, right? They're talking about a black James Bond, right? Now, Fleming did not write a black James Bond. They can talk about diversity all it is, but look, he's a, he's a white male, secret service. You know, I mean, they, they, they could try it. They're talking about... But me. then it's not James Bond. It's, no, no. it's a version of James Bond. You know, Bond. The mid, the, whenever anybody... Whenever they announce there's a new James Bond film every way, everybody... I mean, I'm the same, like, I'm going to watch... It's James Bond. What's the new James Bond? We know it's yeah. going to be the same kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, trying to create these stuff, it's all story-based. People don't realise that there's a lot of complexity in those stories. And they can reinvent Bond from... From now until the thing it is, no matter how many people, Bond is always bigger than the, the history is still yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you, how long has James Bond been going? Like, Since 1962. Screen. And how often do they release them? Is it like every three years or something? They used, well, they used to release them every, well, from 1962 to 1965, it was once a year because they were shot very quickly. Once a year. From 1967 through to 1989, they were every two years. From 1989 and 1995, due to the legal issues over the MGM library, because Peretti, Giancarlo Peretti, was trying to sell off the Danjak assets, there was a long court case. Yeah. And of course, six years, it just went by. Timothy, oh, Dalton, so Timothy Dalton was scheduled to do a third, and he didn't. He just pulled out. So Pierce Brosnan took over. And then from 1995 till 1997, um, till, yeah, to 2001, it was every two years. And then when from... 2005 to the present day, it's been every two years. Some average of every two years. So Ian Fleming, is he dead now? Yeah, yeah he's died. Dead. Died in yeah, died ago. at the time of uh, died at the time of Goldfinger. So did he own? He was getting money from that. Yeah, he was. He well, he was. He was desperate to act. He was. Fleming was desperate to somebody to buy the rights to the books because he he was he was sort of not very happy with it. He'd written, from what I gather from the story, he'd written the stories. And then Harry Saltzman had the original rights. And then Albert Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli, took him over and they joined together to create Dan Jack, which was based on Dana and Jacqueline, their okay. wives. They formed this company and Eon was formed, Everything or Nothing. And and like Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson are the... You said Eon, just mind of the word Orion. What happened to them? Orion went bankrupt. What, any reason? Usually there's a they, couple of films well, most, that bring them no, down. They, they were very successful, but the funny thing is, is at the time when their two biggest successes, Dance with Wolves and Silence of the Lambs were going on, which was 1990. Was they Orion films, were yeah. they? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah. what happened to them then? They just went under. You know, they were sitting there, a lot of companies, that's what happens. Oh, right. Oh. Um, we've got 10 minutes. Three, okay. You're right? You're still you're okay for yeah, 10 what's minutes. Up, what time is it now? Uh, yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's um, the the Carrie, Carrie. Tell us about Carrie that you've just been to. Um, Carrie was um, Carrie was fantastic. Fortieth um, anniversary. Fortieth anniversary. Park so Circus. How old was the Exorcist then? Um, seventy three. And when was Carrie? Nineteen seventy six. So the seventies. When was Jaws? Nineteen seventy five. Yeah. When was Godfather? Nineteen seventy two. Right, hang on. Taxi Driver is... 1976. What happened? Yeah. And is there any explanation what happened there? Why the 70s were so... 
gory did it, no no i mean like <laughs> no it was again no i Any think that, but the thing is is the studios did take a lot of chances in the 70s because a lot of times when you look at something like that you actually look at what happened before the people growing yeah. up like what was the years like with computers they do that what were the years that led to them growing up not if when you it, think well if you think of the 50s and 60s yeah. you know it was post-war in america there was a lot of opportunity and optimism about it you know whereas in in the uk for example we were a war zone and a and a Right, bomb yeah. site. But in America, if you think about it, there was no real problem about it. You know, people went off to war, but America was really untouched as a, as a, as a country. Right. You know, so, you know, people were living as they were. Okay. In the 50s, you know, you had the fear of communism with things like War of the Worlds, yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right. Day of the Earth, yeah, yeah, still yeah, yeah, science yeah. fiction was the big thing. In the 60s, of course, it was like the Westerns and stuff. John Wayne was still a big thing and, and everything else. Magnificent Seven. You know, Psycho was released in 1960, which changed the whole perception of people didn't want to have showers. And then at the end, and then, <laughs> and they still and then at the end of the 60s, when the production code in America happened, what with Bonnie and Clyde and The Wild Bunch, those two films redefined what violence was. So people were now seeing the idea that actually they could take more chances with gore and stuff okay, like that. Right. And it opened up the potential for making movies that were very cynical. So with things like with Clockwork Orange, Straw Dogs, and uh, The Exorcist and the Devils, you know, and Deliverance, for example, you have five movies, and The French Connection as well, yeah. low-budget movie that actually was hated by the studio because they were undergoing a, a change in thing. William Freakin pointed that out in an interview when they released the Blu-ray version of French Connection. He did an interview with Mark Kermode at the screen on the green. I was there, I, okay. I, I asked him. And it was, but it was a challenging time. But then, of course, people got really cynical about it because of the Vietnam War. And then, of course, films like American Graffiti, for example, came along. So, But don't you think it's often, it tends to be dictated by one successful film. A yeah. film gets makes right. a lot of money, the and door. then suddenly everybody wants to make a film just like, so suddenly that becomes a new genre. So... Exorcist or Bonnie and Clyde comes along with a lot of blood and guts and gore and violence. It makes a lot of money. So soon everybody else is making that film. If you made a very successful film about a clown that was super huge, then everybody would make a similar clown type film. And soon that would be a genre that defined a generation. Is it like the It being released again? I think there's a new version coming out. But William Goldman actually pointed this out. He said in an interview with Barry Norman, he said... People don't know what will work. Nobody knows anything. He said, what they know is what has worked. Yeah. He said, people are after past magic. He says, if they make The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, and Star Wars, they will keep making that movie until the vein is dead. Right. He said, not only do you get a lot of sequels, we get a lot of remakes. It's the kind of movie that's hard to rip off. You wouldn't see Terms of Endearment 2 because that would require talent. That's why <laughs> when you get a movie like, that's why when you get a unique movie like, for example... You know, if you look at all the Oscar-winning films that have happened over the years, for example, you know, it, it's it's always a case that when, you know, craft will always shine through. You know, movies will be that big thing that everybody has. And movies are always going to challenge people and push people. And But Peter Bogdanovich describes Star Wars as the juvenilization of, of movies, but at the end of the day, Star Wars saved, you know, created a whole new 
industry and created a lifeline for the, you know, it was seen. But it was reinventing the Buck Rogers 21st century uh, uh, serials that they were showing in cinema to begin with. It actually is, you know, as George Lucas said, he said, well, actually, if, if that stuff is so bad, just imagine what I could do if I did it better. Yeah. And that's what <laughs> yeah. it was. But, but again, you had, you know, it also pioneered, you know, when you think of what happened in the 70s with TV, with, you know, with Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, you know, Blake Sevens, you know, Star yeah. Trek, for example, was revitalized in the late 70s because of Star Wars. They wanted to make a movie rather sure. than a TV series. Okay. Um, and then you now have a situation where, with the advent of technology, you know, we are now able to see the potential of the comic book characters. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, how long that will go on, yeah. I don't know. You know, Spielberg has said there's, there's a limitation on how long that's going to be, but, you know, we're waiting for, you know, with things like the Justice League and Wonder Woman, for example, mm-hmm. um, which they've never quite got right. I'm still waiting on the next definitive Superman that actually rivals Donna's version. Yeah. But um, you had then in the 80s, it came down to such a um, formula even that it was a Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson who made Top yeah, Gun and all yeah. this. They actually had it, for all their, their critics, their movies sold because they had it now down to a right, specific yeah, yeah. formula that there has to be this number of people, these types of stock characters, there has right. to be an explosion in the third act. Oh, really? It has yeah. to have a, and to the point where it was, you could just pigeonhole... Movie making by numbers, yeah. Yes, absolutely Joel, by numbers. Joel Silver actually had a thing called a whammy chart. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, well, what it was is he said, every 10 pages has got to be a whammy like an explosion or an action <laughs> there moment. There you go. So, for example, there, in, um, in a Joel Silver film, there's always a toilet scene. No. They said, this is it. He said, if you, you know, like Dan O'Bannon, for example, the late screenwriter, he said, there's a chicken. There's always a chicken in a Dan O'Bannon film. So, for example, when Ash is looking at, at the microscope, he said, that's a chicken embryo when he's looking at it. Oh. There's, a, there's a chicken in Return of the Living Dead. There's, um, there's a scene in Blue Thunder where, uh, Blue, the movie Blue Thunder, where basically, um, you know, Roy Shard is sort of, caught between two buildings and there's two planes and he shoots the thing and the, and the rocket hits this Chinese restaurant and there's a huge shower of chickens. Oh, <laughs> so that was it. Well, like, we have to watch these now and keep this in mind. Well, Look just at before we started recording, I was talking about the M. Night and saying that he kept introducing the colour red before any yeah. time there'd be a ghost. So I watched Ben back oh, to really? see it. I thought, yeah, you oh, see okay. the colour red. It, isn't it true in the Carrie film? Was it Carrie? The yeah. guy had actually, the, the writer had actually thrown away the script and the, the, his wife had taken it out of the yeah, bin. Yeah, no, in India, yeah, what had happened was he... Is it Carrie? In, no, this was the book. Oh, yeah. In the introduction, what it was, was he'd, he'd been working on the book for a while and his wife, Tabitha, and he'd thrown it away. And, he's, and she asked him, what have you been working on? I said, oh, well, I, I just threw it away. So she picked it up, threw off all these cigarettes. She quite liked it. And then she said, this is good. She finished reading it. So he said, basically, the reason why I wrote Carrie was he meant to please it. That right, he yeah. wrote it to please her. Oh, really? And that was it. Oh, okay. very good. So yeah, right. So on that note, Carrie. <laughs> um, listen, it's been great. Thanks for coming in. I Thank want to have you, you back again. You're welcome. Especially Thank you me. for giving us a mini masterclass. <laughs> yeah, that's all you're welcome. He's, he's mean, got a lot more. Trust yeah, me. He's got I a lot mean, more. No, there. seriously. I mean, I, I I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm. You know, I'll, I'll be happy to talk as um, as much as possible. I mean, I'll, and well, I, tell us more about. Uh, well, come back again and tell us more about Twisted Boy. Yeah. I mean, well, what well, I do, it's gonna. Well, it's it's under. There's a publisher who's looking at it now um and hopefully by the next time we meet i'll 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 have some more we'll, news for you we'll fantastic keep in contact. well thanks very much all right, john, john thanks a lot brother thank you thank you, thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Vilucci Film Podcast, hosted by myself, Tom Wheelahan, and Theo X, with audio production by Antonio Panejo. As always, to get in touch with the show, go to Vialucci.com and follow the links. See you next time.